we are jumping back into uh, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to finish up the chapter this morning. Um, just to, to kind of repa- recap what has happened so far throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Um, after we introduced, uh, after we are introduced to Jesus' genealogy and his birth at the beginning of the book, we go on to his baptism and his temptation in the desert. There's not a whole lot about Jesus' childhood in Scripture, uh, other than one passage in the uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where it uh, talks about Jesus being in the temple. That's about the only thing we have from Jesus' childhood. From his temptation in the desert, we go to the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that, we hear of his time in and around Galilee, where he was teaching and performing miracles and so on and so forth. And following that, he commissions his disciples to go and to preach and to teach the message that he's been preaching and teaching. That's where chapter 11 picks up, is with the departure. When Jesus has finished instructing his disciples, he sends them out. Then we move into this section, uh, which is where I, I, I'd really call this a confirmation of Jesus' identity and his authority. Just in case anybody who had heard him so far didn't know who he was and didn't know what he came to say, chapter 11 is really where that's set into concrete. Um, As Dave shared with you last week, part of that identity and a a consequence of his authority is really a part that we don't like. Be honest. We don't like the fact that Jesus is the judge. We don't like the idea that Jesus has the authority and has the identity to pronounce woe upon people for disobedience. We don't like that idea. Our flesh doesn't like that idea. We don't want to have somebody that we can answer to, or that we have to answer to. Nobody likes being under authority. In fact, what is the American dream when it comes to, uh, let's say, employment? The, the American dream is to retire, right? Why? So I don't have to go work for the man anymore, right? So I don't have to get up and slave away for somebody who's in authority over me. And if I do have to work, and I've known a lot of people in the military like this, if I do have to work, I want to be my own boss. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start my own business and be my own boss. So the only person I have to answer to is who? Me, and the laws that the federal and state and local governments place on me. And when we have to follow those, what do we do? We chafe and we complain and we gripe about the taxes and the restrictions and the regulations. And we don't like authority. Had this discussion on Tuesday with somebody. When it comes to the question of why we don't like authority, why... We don't want to answer to somebody. Look at Genesis chapter 3. God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows in the minute that you eat it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You will be the master of your own destiny, and God doesn't want that. Well, you know God knows best. (laughs) We don't need to be the master of our own destiny because we'll screw it up. And so we have to face this identity of Jesus, that he is the one who can set expectations, who can give requirements, and who can 
condemn those who disobey. That's the gist of the passage that Dave covered last week, the the woe to the unrepentant cities. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, when you go into these cities, these towns, if they don't receive my message, what are you supposed to do? Knock the dust off your feet. They're unclean, they're unredeemed, and leave. Don't argue with them, don't stay there and battle with them. Why? Because God will take care of that. And that's what he was talking about in verses 20 through 24. The good thing for us is that's not the end of what Jesus came to do. That's not the end of the story. So if you would, stand with me for verses 25 through 30, the rest of the chapter. (laughs) Just a little bit. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we would not lose sight of the full picture of who Jesus is. That along with His authority to command, and His ability to judge and to condemn, comes with His gracious, merciful nature to give us rest. Father, I pray this morning that we would be good students of your word, that we would handle it appropriately and learn a little bit more about who Jesus is. We pray this because of him. Amen. Please have a seat. So, the flip side of the coin, the other aspect of Jesus' identity is that for those who are His, those who call on the name of Christ, there are two things that we don't get anywhere else, and that is rest and peace. Part of the the reason last weekend was so enjoyable. Um, I didn't have to worry about getting up Monday morning and going to work. I didn't have to run around Sunday morning and I know Sunday is supposed to be a day that we worship and we rest, right? But I, this might come as a shock to you, but Sunday is one of the busiest days of my life. I don't rest on Sunday. That's not part of this package. It's not associated with this position. My rest normally happens Saturday night from about 5 to maybe 9, give or take. Right? Sunday is not a day of rest for me. So... Even the fact that I did not have to prepare a message for last week, that I was able to sleep in and relax on Sunday morning, that I did not have to worry about what was happening here, that I could trust that God was going to take care of His church even without me being here, that was an element of rest that I don't often see. And that's not even the rest that Jesus is talking about. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there, because that's, that's the end of the passage. We need to start at the beginning. Immediately, on the heels of his pronouncement of woe, right after he is talking about judgment 
It, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sol, uh, Sodom than for you. And I don't know about you, but that rather scares me a little bit, right? Because it really wasn't all that tolerable for Sodom as they were burnt to a crisp. Jesus says that would be better than what's coming for those who reject my message, right? Immediately on the heels of that, Jesus declares, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He thanks God. Now, I want to pay attention to the words that he uses because this is, this is weird. All right? We accept it as pretty well normal. Uh, we, we see it as something that, that we do. But the manner that Jesus uses to address God. If you have the ability, when you, when you got some time this week, if you have any form of uh, Bible software on a computer or on a smartphone that has a search function, I want you to search for the word Father in the Old Testament. No, Father in English, the word Father. Because in Hebrew, it's not the word Abba, that's Greek, okay? And uh, even here, Jesus isn't using the word Abba, he's using the word Pater, which is the word Father, okay? But I want you to search in the Old Testament for the word Father. It shows up a lot. I mean, you've got the book of Numbers, <laughs> which is genealogies, right? So Father shows up a lot. So you're going to have to do some scanning as you go through all these references to the word Father. Notice the ones that are capitalized, that aren't at the beginning of a sentence. In my Bible software, I found exactly two references to God as Father. Two. The book of Isaiah and the book of Malachi. And in both of those cases, it is not so much talking about God in a relationship with us as a father-son relationship as it is God in a creator relationship with his people. He's the father of creation. He created all of us, right? When Jesus shows up on the scene, he calls God Father all the time. That was not normal. In fact, that's one of the things that bothered the Jews about the way Jesus prayed. He prayed Father. He said, the Father and I are one. He told the disciples, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Right? That's not normal. When Jesus shows up on the scene, we think of nothing of it when somebody calls God Father. Because that's what Jesus taught us to do. But when Jesus did it, it was revolutionary. It was mind-bending. And the reason for that is because of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus was the first person who could rightly call God Father in that kind of a relationship. And when we call God Father, it's a father of adoption. If we are his children, we have been adopted into his family. So we now have that ability. That's why he taught the disciples to pray that way. But I want you to pay close attention to what comes immediately after that. 
I thank you, Father, comma, Lord of heaven and earth. See, Jesus isn't just talking in that intimate father-son relationship, but he's also referring to God as sovereign, as Lord and master. There's a, a sense of reverence. He's not only God the Father, but he is the master of all creation. That's important for us to follow Jesus' example because sometimes we get a little bit too wrapped up on the whole, you know, Jesus has called me friend, I'm, I'm Jesus' buddy, right? And, and God is my father, I can call him daddy, right? But at the same time, he is the Holy One of Israel. He is creator God. He is almighty, master of heaven and earth. See, we have to balance that familiarity with that awe and reverence and respect. We have to know who God is. Now look at what God is thanking or what Jesus is thanking God for. This is this is this is not something we're comfortable with. Thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. These things are the things of the gospel. And and the two phrases there, the wise and understanding and little children, those two phrases are very, 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 very important for us to understand God's sovereignty and how he reveals himself to people. The Greek words are very, very nuanced in their definitions. The wise and the understanding. Jesus is talking about the intelligent, the learned the worldly wise, all right, those who have what most people would call a good education. They're smart. They're intelligent, right? God has hidden the things of the kingdom from the wise, from the knowledgeable, from the intelligent, the educated. Now, Jesus isn't putting down those who are well-educated. He's not putting down those who are smart those who have studied and applied themselves to a field of of study or something like that. He's not saying we have to be ignorant or uneducated. And I can say that because of the other phrase, which is little children. Contrast those two, right? Kids are innocent in their lack of knowledge, right? Right? There are some things that children just trust is going to happen because that's what happens. I don't know how it happens. I don't know why it happens. I don't know what happens behind it, but I know that's what's going to happen. And so when Jesus says that God has revealed these things to little children, he's not putting an age cap on the gospel. He's not saying you've got to be a, a toddler in order to understand. He's not saying that you, you have to, this has to happen before school. That word can mean somebody who is unskilled or untaught, somebody who is innocent in their knowledge, somebody who is trusting, somebody who is not full of guile. There's no deceit, there's no treachery, there's no underhandedness. Whereas the educated, the wise, and the understanding, we tend to 
and I count myself as a we, right? We tend to complicate matters. In fact, when we, we went through the Share Jesus Without Fear series on Sunday nights uh, here this past month, uh, Bill Fay was talking about Christians sharing their faith. And people say one of the reasons they don't share their faith is because they don't know enough. He says it's funny, though, because what you have is those people who are brand new to the faith are the ones who most often go out and tell people about Jesus. Because those of us who've been in the church for a while, who've studied for a while, who've, who've maybe read most of the Bible or even parts of the Bible a couple of times, we are spiritually constipated. We've got so much knowledge in our heads that we don't know what to say. We complicate things. We make it harder than it has to be. A little child doesn't do that. And so Jesus says that God has chosen to show the truth of the gospel to those who aren't relying on their own knowledge, who aren't trying to understand it on their own, who aren't going to try to make it on their own. God chooses who he pleases, not according to our wisdom, not according to our plans, not according to our understanding. Now, Jesus says, such was your gracious will, in verse 26 there. Sometimes that's hard for us to uh, accept, that it's God's will. Well, that's not fair. God needs to show this to everybody so that everybody can come to that point of salvation. Everybody can come to that point of faith. Everybody can accept who Jesus is and be saved, right? Everybody. There's a problem with that. That presumes that God owes anybody salvation. That presumes that God has to save everybody. He has to give everybody the opportunity. He has to. He owes it to us. Let me ask you, what does God owe you? Justice. God owes you justice for your disobedience. He owes you punishment for your sin. He owes you condemnation for what we've done. He doesn't owe us salvation. If he owed it to us, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is not owed. If I choose to give my children a birthday present, it is a gift. It is not because they deserve it, it's because it is a gift. It is freely given. If I choose not to give them a, gift, a birthday present, can they really come to me and say, but you owe me a birthday present? No. I owe you the wages that you earn. I owe you what is your obligation. And so we have to realize, we have to recognize God's giving grace to some and not to everyone is God's prerogative. It's not done capriciously. It's not done according to our will. It's done according to His. So now we move on. Jesus says all things have been given to Him by the Father. Chapter 28 of Matthew, Jesus says that too. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And then he follows that with, go therefore, make disciples of all people, teaching them all that I've taught you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We call that the Great Commission. So what is the point of Jesus saying that all things have been given to him by the Father? That means he has this authority. He has this authority in verses 20 through 24 to condemn disobedience, to discipline, to judge. And then in verses 25 to the end of the chapter, he has that authority to give grace and to give mercy and to offer salvation. He has that authority. It's been given to him by the Father. And then he says that no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, is that idea of choice. But it's Jesus' choice, not ours. Now, does that mean that nobody knows Jesus? Because at this point in his ministry, I would say that uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and... Uh, Matthew, at the very least, those five, I'll go with those five names that we can all agree on right off, without pulling up the other seven that I can't ever remember, right? I can guarantee you that those five people know Jesus. But Jesus just said nobody knows the Son except the Father. So is he talking about the knowledge that we're thinking about? No. The word that is being used there is not the word gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge about something, but it's the word epigenosis, epigenosko, which is a deep, intimate, thorough knowledge. Like back in, in Genesis chapter 4, after the curse, we read that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Now, that wasn't a brief introduction. Okay, that was not a handshake, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. That was an intimate knowledge of one another. Same kind of concept. That nobody knows Jesus that intimately except the Father. Because we are limited by our senses. We are limited by what we can see and hear and touch and feel. But God knows the Son because they exist together in perfect relationship. And nobody knows the Father except the Son. Because they exist together in that perfect relationship. But then Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, Jesus gives us the ability to know God intimately. Now, we can know people at various levels, right? Probably the person that I should know best is Steph. I said should, because it's not something that comes automatic. It's something we have to work at. It's something that I could very easily let slip, and I have quite a bit, okay? Probably the people that I know next best would be my kids, and as they get older, that gets harder. And then probably the next best people that I should know ought to be my parents. Of course, living out of the house for the last 25 years, 
That's drifted a little bit, right? Okay? See, we're limited in our knowledge. And we have to choose to work at it. We do. But that knowledge has to be there for us to work on. And Jesus says the Son can give that. He can reveal that to people. But again, it depends on what God chooses to do. The act of rebirth, the decision as to who will and will not be saved, lies entirely in the hands of God. It is not man who wills to know God, because without the work of the Holy Spirit, we're unable to, and even if we had the ability, we wouldn't want to. We don't want to know God until He reveals Himself to us. We are at enmity with Him. We are opposed to Him. Our disposition is bent away from God and rebellious in every way, unless and until God acts. And now the the two verses at the end of this, sorry, three verses at the end of this, that are counterpoint to the, the message of judgment and condemnation in verses 20 through 24. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What labor do you suppose Jesus is talking about? What work is he talking about? Is he talking about our nine to five? Right? Or, in my case, six to four? Right? (laughs) Is he talking about our day-to-day work? I don't think so, because Paul told us in in the book of Thessalonians, when he was dealing with the Thessalonians and they had people who were were kind of freeloaders, right? He said, if a man doesn't work, then he doesn't eat. It's not if he can't work. We're supposed to take care of those who can't. It's if he doesn't. If he's a freeloader, he doesn't eat. So it's not our daily work by which we earn a living and provide for our families and that sort of stuff. The idea here, what he's been talking about so far, has been the revelation of salvation, the gospel message, right? That's been what he's talking about, so that labor must be in relation to our eternal life. So come to me, all who labor, who are working and striving and slaving to keep the law of God, at least externally, as much as they can, in their own power, in the hopes that one of these days when God comes down and says, okay, it's time for the judgment, here's the scales, put all your good stuff in one hand and all your bad stuff in the other, they're just hoping that the good stuff is going to weigh just a little, bit more than the bad stuff so that they can make the cut right that's what he means by laboring by working and striving for salvation the pharisees were guilty of this attitude remember in the sermon in the mount jesus said you've heard that it was said Don't do this. 
But I tell you this. I tell you things are different. I tell you that God meant a little bit more than don't steal. He meant don't covet somebody's stuff. He even said don't covet somebody's stuff. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. It's not just don't murder people. It's don't hate people unjustly. Don't insult them. Well, wait a minute. That makes it sound like there's even more work involved in salvation. Jesus says you can't do it. You cannot be good enough for God to come down and to judge your works. And I'll tell you why. So if this is my good hand, if this is where all my good works go, and this is where all my sin goes, okay, the weight of one sin is greater than the weight of all good works that I can do. Because every good work that I do is stained by that sin. How many of you would feel good drinking a glass of water that I told you there was one milliliter of raw sewage in it? (laughs) Yeah, no thanks. I'm I'm good, I'll pass. Right? Right? But it's just one milliliter. You wouldn't even be able to see it if I diluted it well enough. It's okay. That's how sin affects our life. Anything that would go in this hand is automatically tainted by what's in this hand. We cannot be good enough. We cannot work hard enough. The Pharisees taught that you had to keep Every letter of the law. Don't work on Sunday. That means you don't walk more than a mile from your house or your possessions. Of course, for them it was Saturday. So on Friday before sunset, what would they do? They'd take an end stand one mile from their house. And then they would take a toothbrush a mile from their end stand. And then they would take a hairbrush a mile from their toothbrush. And they'd leave them along the road. So then Saturday, when they're not supposed to be working, they would walk to the end stand, to the toothbrush, and to the hairbrush. And then they could go a mile beyond that. I wish I could say it was only the Pharisees that will find loopholes like that. I heard somebody who was a, uh, a youth minister. He said the most common question that the youth would come to him is, how far can we go before it's sin?" Right? How far can me and my girlfriend or me and my boyfriend go before it's sin? How far can I put my toes over that line before I fall off? That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's how we approach sin. How close can I get before I'm in it? If we work like that, it's no wonder we can work and work and work and work and work and work and work. And not work enough. It wasn't just the Pharisees that teach that. Every religious group in the world. Every other faith. Whether they claim to be Christian or not. And even some who are. Or at least ought to be. Christian. Teach that we have to contribute. 
we have to work. Now, we ought to strive. We are commanded. God says, be holy as I am holy. We have an expectation to work. We have an expectation to do good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are saved by faith, not our own. That faith is a gift of God so that we can't boast. And then verse 10 that nobody likes. And we're saved to do good works. So we are commanded to work. But it's not to earn that salvation. It's not to grasp that salvation. The Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Buddhists, Hindus, pick a faith group. They will all tell you that you have to work to make it to heaven, to make it to the selection process, to make sure that your good works outdo your bad. But we cannot do it. Even as we are expected to follow God's commands, we cannot do it. So what does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. See, I can look at my day-to-day life. I can know that God calls me to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect as he is perfect, to be righteous as he is righteous. He commands me to do those things, right? And there might have been, this morning, before now, maybe a period of uh, 30 seconds or so where I actually did it. Maybe. But it doesn't take very long for sin to creep back in. So do I throw my hands in the air? Say, what's the point? No, Jesus says you keep going. But, where is my rest? Is my rest in a job well done? No, because I failed miserably. I go to work every day and I strive and I strive and I strive my hardest. And at the end of the day, am I able to go home and say, well, I really, I really kicked some tail today. I did everything I was supposed to. No. I go home and I say, well, I screwed that record up and that student is, is and I've got instructor and yet, yeah, no, I don't have any rest. Because guess what I got to do tomorrow? Same old, same old. That's not how salvation works. We put our faith in Christ for our salvation, no matter the sin in our lives, at the end of the day we get done striving and trying to, to keep God's word and trying to do what he's commanded us to do. And when I go to sleep at the end of the day, and I will tell you this, all right, and this, this I don't know, it may just be me, and it may be biological as much as it is spiritual, but I have no problem finding my rest in Christ and going to sleep with a relatively clear conscience. Because I know that I'm forgiven. I know that whatever I did today is forgiven. Because I'm in Christ. No matter how hard I strive, no matter how hard I fail, I can rest in knowing that I don't have to reach something that is unattainable for me. Even as a believer, I have a helper, I have the Holy Spirit, and if I listen, I might just be able to be holy, I might just be able to be righteous for a little bit longer, 
But when I fail, not if, and I'm convicted for that sin and I repent and then I get back behind the wheel of the car and I sin again and I repent and I'm still driving to work so I sin and I repent and I keep, because it's four and a half miles down past road so I do this a lot. I sin and I repent, I sin and I repent, I sin and I repent, right? I know that when I get to work, I can rest in Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. His burden is easy. So, to wrap this chapter up, with the last two sections there, Jesus makes it very clear that to those who reject Him, to those who reject His message, to those who turn away from the gospel, for them, there is condemnation that's going to make what happened to Sodom look like a walk in the park. But to those who come to Him, to those to whom He reveals the Father, there is rest. There is peace. There is the ability to grow and not be squashed under the pressure of trying to reach a goal that you cannot reach. That is the message of hope that we need to take to the world. That's the message of salvation that we are commanded to share when we go out and tell people who Jesus is.